It's a long reading. It's a story many of us already know. Some of us may not. It's a really important, significant story in David's life as we go through his life. Um, Brilliant. It's come up. Good King David. I've entitled it The Hidden Story. I'll talk to you a bit more about that in a moment. Let's just pray together. We just ask you now, Holy Spirit, please come. Come and guide my words and speak through me and come and help each one of us to hear from you, bringer of life, the one we need. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to take a slightly different take on um, David and Bathsheba. I could take a very easy moralistic take and I could say, look, we can see this flaw, don't do the same. That's in there. That's in there. But I want to just explore it a little bit more in a slightly different way, potentially, this morning. But before we do, I just want to talk to you about um, a magic show I went to see on holiday. Uh, We were staying in a park, as only a week or two ago, um, and every night they had this awful, cheesy entertainment. And one of the nights was a magician. And we're like, yeah, let's go and watch a magician. Because we all love to watch a magician. And the magician, of course is showing off and doing all these wonderful and amazing things. And of course the kids want to know, how do you, do, how do you cut rope and then it's not cut anymore? How do you get rings and make them do all these amazing things and hook and unhook? I like pretending to do a bit of magic to my kids sometimes. It's one of the joys of being a dad and having little kids that are still young enough for me to get away with it. Um, and uh, this is one of the tricks I like to do. I don't normally do it with this, I normally do it with a pencil or a knife. I'm going to show you a magic trick. Genuine bodified magic trick. It's called the squeezy wrist. And what I tell them is that if I squeeze my wrist really hard, then my hand becomes amazingly sticky and I can hold this stick. Alright, so here we go. So I'm going to squeeze my wrist really hard. Are you watching? As I squeeze my wrist, I can let go of one, of two, of three, of four, and I can let go of five. Look at that, hey? A magic trick. But of course, you're like, yeah, thank you, Matt. Isn't it amazing? But of course, there's a hidden side to it, isn't there? Because if I accidentally do that, you see what I'm up to, right? So this side, I'm showing off and I'm, look at me, I'm just this amazing magician. But of course, there's a hidden side. There's a secret side that you're not supposed to know about. A hidden story. I just want you to think for a moment about the news recently um, and about what we've been hearing about celebrities that we know and we love and we've watched and we've enjoyed and suddenly we're finding out one after another after another that they had a hidden side, right? It's quite hard to read the news sometimes. Another person who you thought, I really loved watching them. You hear that actually they were hiding something dark. They were hiding, if you like, sin in the past or even in the present. And the side that they showed to everybody was very, very different. The public story was very, very different from the hidden story that they were carrying. And perhaps they thought if they just forgot about it or they squashed it down or if they just waited long enough, or if they were uh, charismatic enough, or if they were celebrity enough, their fame and prestige, somehow it would protect them and it would all just go away. 
Perhaps they thought they could just bury it. But the truth is, even if it hadn't been found out publicly, they would have been carrying in them this secret side. It was under the surface. Sin in the darkness. That's where sin loves to be. Hidden, but there. And we might rightly judge these celebrities, really. We should never, ever look lightly on abuse and the things that we're hearing about. But there would be few of us here this morning, if we're honest, who wouldn't admit that maybe I haven't done this big and awful thing. Or maybe I have. Maybe I haven't, though, but maybe I still recognise that there's a side of me that carries a brokenness and a sinfulness and a selfishness that I'm not all who I present I am on the outside, on the inside. There is a big inconsistency, if you like, between the me that I present, the public story, and the hidden story. A chronic internal inconsistency, a brokenness we carry that we think no one sees or could understand. I want to tell you the story that we heard of David and Bathsheba. The story of 2 Samuel 11. But I want to tell you the story that David wished you'd heard. Interesting. You may not have heard this story before. This is the story he'd hoped you'd hear. The public story. You see, 2 Samuel 8, back a couple of chapters, verse 15, tells us the type of king that David was created to be, that God knew he could be, and that the people thought he was. So David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all the people. What a thing. Wow. This was David. Good King David. So here was his public story. It was springtime, and yes... The king's armies were out, but David was an excellent delegator. He was a good and wise leader, and showing good and wise leadership, he trusted Joab, his chief of the army, to go out. Besides, he had his 30 strongest men, alongside the soldiers, going out to attack and besiege the city of Rabbah, to try and deal with the Ammonites forever. But obviously, as a good king, he worried about his troops. He was resting, he desperately needed it, and no one would have blamed him for it in the palace, but he still just kept thinking about his troops and how they were doing. So he sent message to one of his finest men, one of the 30 brave men we hear of renown, one of David's men, and he called him, he was called Uriah the Hittite, known to David. And he said, Uriah, I just need to know what's going on. How is it going? I'm, I'm really hoping you're doing okay. And Uriah told him how the siege was going on. And David wanted to bless this faithful and good man. So he threw him a lovely meal. And he gave him lots of alcohol because he wanted to bless him. And he said, look, I will give you kingly freedom now to go and be with your wife. I know you want to be on the battlefield, but go and be with your wife because David was good and kind. And he wanted to love and look after Uriah. But Uriah said, no, I'm faithful to my friends. How could I go and be with my wife if there's a battle going on? I couldn't do that. David thought, wow, what an amazing guy this guy really is. A true one of my 30 men. And so he sent him back to the battlefield with a note for Joab, the, the, the lead of his army, saying, giving instructions on what should happen next and how they could beat and win the siege. Sadly, 
the news came back to David, and it was sad news, that some of the men had got too close to the wall. Now, David should have been angry, because what was Joab thinking? You never put men close to the wall in a siege. That's where they can pour things down, throw things down, shoot things down. He even heard the saddest news of all, that Uriah was dead. But David, being merciful and kind, he didn't get angry with Joab. He said, it's okay. The sword devours one, and the sword devours another. Go and win the city, and David was kind and merciful. But then David thought about Uriah's wife. He must have a wife, right? And he found out she's called Bathsheba, and he wondered how this widow would survive without her husband. So he was kind, and he took her in, and he loved her and looked after her. And as a sign of blessing, they had a son together. This is the public story of David and Bathsheba. This is the story that's written there, or at least that David desperately tried to write there. The good king who reigned over all Israel and did what is just and right. It's a story of honour and kindness and goodness. But David knew, friends, that this was not the true and real story. Whether he buried it down so deep, whether he just tried to ignore it, whether he tried to justify it to himself, he was carrying that chronic internal inconsistency where the public David was so, so different to the hidden story. He knew it was a lie. And the last sentence of this chapter tells us that he wasn't alone in knowing this. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27. You see, however we might try, our real stories are never hidden from God. So let's look together quickly, if we can, at the real story, at the hidden story, and let's learn from it this morning, because actually it teaches us so much about our human nature and about sin and the way we try and construct stories to hide it and squash it down. And the real story begins with this ominous tone, and you will have heard this preached many times potentially, that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out and he remained in Jerusalem. It starts by saying David was in Jerusalem when David shouldn't have been in Jerusalem. Like the starting sinister chords of a spooky thriller that you're watching, you know something isn't right here. Something isn't right. And you know, sometimes we end up completely out of our control in the wrong place at the wrong time in our lives. But you know we're also sometimes able to quietly and subconsciously find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. How did I possibly get here? And so it begins. Walking on the roof in the cool of the evening, David sees Bathsheba, doesn't he? And the text tells us that She's a beautiful woman, she's bathing, she's washing. And he glanced down, presumably totally innocently at first in verse 2. But now we see the cogs begin to turn on David's demise. For the glance, potentially, I think, probably turned into a linger. And then to a gaze, a prolonged gaze. And then it turned to an inquiry. Who is she? This chain of sin, if you like, has begun. This seeing, and then this looking. And then this wanting. And then finally this taking. Because that's what the account tells us happened. In fact, it says it in a very matter-of-fact 
way. He sends for her and he sleeps with her and then she goes back home. Perhaps he convinced himself it's just a minor indiscretion for a king. Besides, all the other kings were doing it, I'm sure. The king could have any woman he wanted. It was just maybe a one-night stand or a two-night stand or a five-night stand, but it doesn't matter. We can kid ourselves with sin, that it doesn't matter. It's a small thing. No one need ever know. Perhaps it could just all be forgotten about. But of course, that's not how it works. This was someone's wife. Not even the king was immune from committing adultery. And we read that she was actually at her most fertile stage and Bathsheba falls pregnant. And it's David's. So panic sets in. And David begins to devise a plan to cover up his sin. To rewrite the story as if somehow he could do that. To wash it away. And he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, under the guise of finding out, as we heard, how the siege was going. But really, he just desperately wants him to go and sleep with his wife. Then it could be Uriah's baby and everything would be fine, right? Go and wash your feet. It's an ancient euphemism. Go and sleep with your wife. Go do it. And he plies alcohol on and he gives him gifts, but Uriah will not go. David's rewriting of the story, his washing of the stain, is not working. And so the sin grows. For he goes just one step further. I mean, he would never kill Uriah, right? But the thought enters his head that if Uriah died in battle, wouldn't that be convenient? Wouldn't that be convenient? And so this is what he arranges to happen, a truly, genuinely despicable and callous act. He sends loyal, faithful Uriah, who I always thought was just a random bloke. No, we find out later in chapter, I think it's 27, um, or maybe 23, anyway, it's, it's the end of 2 Samuel. We find out he was one of the 30 brave men of David. He was a man of renown and he sends this faithful servant away with a note ordering his own death knowing Uriah won't read that note he's faithful, he'll give it to Joab the commander and he does that and the note says put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die don't forget this is the same David who reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all his people Sadly, Uriah is killed. He's forced to go far too close to the walls, struck down. And when David hears the news from the messenger, you can almost sense his relief. Not his sadness, his relief. And he just gives this platitude of being this lovely guy. Oh, don't let it worry you, Joab. You know, the sword takes one and it takes another. Be encouraged. You see, the way was now clear for David, or so he thought. Just a little secret between him and Joab. Just a little secret between Bathsheba and himself. No one need know. He's now free to take her as his wife. The story is seemingly rewritten. The real story is buried. And now the new story can be told. The public story of David the hero and his love for Uriah and Bathsheba. But the gulf between the hidden story and the real story is enormous. The hidden story and the public story, rather, is enormous. What we've done is we've come face to face with sin in this story. It's not trendy 
or popular to talk about sin these days. Part of being at Bible college is trying to work out how you communicate without using this word because it's seen as archaic and old and religious. We all go, oh, we all know what sin is. It's a bit heavy-handed and it's old-fashioned. But friends, it's real. It's real. We have this funny idea that somehow we can hide our sin if we just don't talk about it or perhaps if we don't think about it or if we pretend it doesn't matter like society does. It doesn't matter. Or perhaps we construct a totally different story to cover it up, hoping it will go away. But sin leaves a mark and it festers best, hear this, in the hidden and the secret and the dark places. It's a stain that doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it never goes with human washing. With human washing. With lies or deceit or cover-up. It only grows. Its impact we see, its cost, ripple throughout our world. As we read the news, as we understand the brokenness of society. But we also, can we not know the impact and the cost ripple through our own personal lives too? You see, God warned us from the very beginning in Scripture that sin is crouching at your door. This is a Scripture, Genesis 4-7, if you don't know it. Listen to the metaphor. Sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal waiting. It desires to have you, but you must master it. God said at the very, very beginning, he knew what it was going to feel like. Sin is us, and our choices, but it also feels like something so much bigger that we fall into and that wants to control us and wants to have its mark on our lives. As one writer put it, sin is so much more than a mistake. It's a cruel master. It's a destroyer. It infiltrates as pleasure. It masquerades as independence. It feeds off pride. It deceives with a message of now this is living. And in fact, it's counter life. Pleasure of sin only lasting for a season and the wages of sin are death. It is destructive. Romans 6, 23. Even though David thought it was all hidden, it couldn't be hidden away. And it began a cycle of violence and brokenness and sin in his family line. And we read that in this old covenant time, the tragic news that even his baby dies as a result tragically of this sin it started with an innocent glance and it ended with adultery and betrayal and murder and lies and death and relational destruction a truly catastrophic cost if only he'd known but that's so often how sin can be isn't it it can start so subtly If it were to come to you in the light of the day with all its ugliness and brokenness and hurt and shame, you'd say, no way, no way, get away from me, I'm not that kind of person. But it doesn't seldom do that. It begins with an innocent mistake and then it's allowed to grow. An innocent chat or an overheard conversation, an idea from a colleague or a friend, something that pops into your head, a thought from the TV or a book. It's the same whether it be financial or sexual or relational or physical or spiritual. Before you know, it grows and we ponder on it and we act on it. And before we know, unless the chain is broken, it's too late. Rarely does it come out of the blue. And I just want to say one more thing about it. 
sin almost always loves to grow when we're focused on ourselves, when it's about what I need and what I want and what my rights are and what I desire and what is fair for me. This is when sin takes a hold. This is the environment, if you like, in which sin and brokenness can grow in our lives and in our world. It's when we forget about family and friends and brothers and sisters in the church, when we forget about our responsibilities, when we forget about our kingly covenant to lead this people in goodness and righteousness. When all those things begin to go out of the window, that's when it grows. There was no thought of Bathsheba and what her needs were and how she was and what she desired. I want, I need, so I'll have. The thing David did displeased the Lord. Why? Because sin's naughty and we shouldn't break the rules? No. Because God loved Uriah and Bathsheba and David more than they could ever realise. And sin comes in and breaks up his hopes and his dreams for them. Sin comes in and starts to destroy and ruin the plans and the hopes God has for them. That's why sin matters. Our pride and our greed and our violence, our stupidity, our deceit, it comes in and robs us and it robs others of all the joy that God intends for us. I just want to say don't underestimate sin, friends. Perhaps there's someone here this morning who is on the brink of some catastrophic mistake and you know, you know in your heart it's not right. And I just want to say this morning, stop. I just want to say, in the name of the Lord, just stop. Come away, come down from the roof, step away from whatever it is. What it shows you and it offers you is a lie. It masquerades as this wonderful good thing. The cost is huge. Run back to God. Run back to your Heavenly Father. Run back to Jesus who has so much more for you and so much better for you. If that's you this morning, just hear these words. Stop and come back to Father God. He has so much better for you. I haven't got long left, but I'm going to try and summarise this last bit because I think this is for all of us potentially but maybe for some in particular. Perhaps you're not on the brink of some great mistake, friends. But most of us here, if not all of us here, will recognise what it is to have a hidden story that is so different to the one we display on the outside. Perhaps there are people here this morning who have stuffed up badly in their lives, morally or legally or whatever it is, And you carry that hidden shame with you every day. Perhaps you feel excluded or inferior or defiled within. Perhaps, actually, there are those here who haven't done anything majorly wrong that they can think of, but they just know they're not the same person. You know the me that I present is so far different to the me I am inside, the brokenness I carry, the hidden story. Well, here clearly this morning, brothers and sisters, there is one who sees it all 
who sees the public story and sees the hidden story. And he holds a vision for you and me of all we could be when we are free from this awful inconsistency, from this horrible brokenness that we carry. He has a story that takes us away from shame and brokenness and he wants to write a new story in us, in each of us, a story of wholeness and of freedom. You see, his, his vision, God's vision, is not of us walking with crippling guilt or shame. It's not of us hiding the mess so deeply down and we're good at this, putting it in a box and closing it and locking it tight and then pretending we're fine. But nor is his vision of us opening it all up and just realising we're awful and living a life where we just go around and say, I'm rubbish, I'm awful. He doesn't want either for us. He pictures me and you free of the hidden, of the shame. But to become free, we first have to be honest with ourselves. As Ewan was talking about, perhaps we need to be honest with a Christian friend. We don't need to wear it on our sleeve and tell everyone, but there is huge power in confession to one another and to the Lord. For David, this moment of confession, I'll be quick here now, took a messenger of God to tell him a story. We read it in the next chapter. Nathan comes and says, look, there was this rich guy that had all these sheep and there was this poor guy who had one and the rich guy wanted to hold a party and he he took the one sheep the other person had. And David goes, that's outrageous. He should die. And Nathan goes, that's you. That person is you, David. That sin is yours. And because of this, David is led to honest acceptance and to true repentance, we read in Psalm 51. And the joy of total forgiveness, we read in Psalm 32. I'll finish with this last bit. That Father God invites each one of us this morning to hear another story. It's a true story. It's the story of the cross. And it's a story that starts with honest acceptance. For here at the cross, as we look at this innocent man suffering unjustly, we realise that it's my sin that he's taken on. We see the consequences and the cost of it all. We see how dark and how broken and how painful it all can be and how destructive it is. And then we're led to true repentance The shame and the sin is no longer hidden. We bring it out into the light. It shines in the darkness at the cross. And we are sorry in our heart, truly. And we set our desires on something so very different. I don't want this. I can't carry this anymore. And now at the cross, we begin to realise something amazing. That it is taken from us. All of it taken from us, all that hidden stuff right in front of us. It's taken and dealt with. Taken by him, not just so we can bury it or so we can live in the shame of it, but taken for good so that we can be free of it and never have it back. For here we realise that we have total, complete forgiveness. In this place before the cross of Jesus, we are totally forgiven. It is the cross we come to friends, with our hidden burden, our exhausting load, 
For this place of brokenness and shame, the cross, actually is also the place of resurrection and of hope and of transformation. This is the place where we see his death frees us from our death. His suffering frees us from our suffering. His humiliation frees us from our humiliation. And we also realize this is a place where the Holy Spirit begins to write a new story in us. And it's not the public story we've been pretending, and it's not the hidden story that we've been hiding. It's a new story of hope in Jesus, of knowing that we are totally known, that nothing is hidden, that we don't have to pretend anymore, that we don't have to be afraid anymore. The consequences of our sin, yes, still echo in this world and in this life. The consequences and the legal consequences still hold in this life. But the amazing truth is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the place where we learn that. There is no condemnation for you. Jesus doesn't find the hidden story and say, I hate it, that's a disgrace, put it away, I never want to see it again. He takes it and he shines his mighty light on it and his love completely and utterly floods over you. And he says it's gone. There is no condemnation, no more hidden story, no more shame. Your story and my story begins to be rewritten as a story of wholeness and freedom. Freedom to love, freedom to serve and to care, to serve others, to flourish and to prosper, to know joy, yes, to know fruit. Freedom not to live a lie, but freedom to live the truth. I am a sinner, but I am fully known, I am fully loved, and I am forgiven completely by God. I am a child of the King. And that is my story, and that is the story I am learning to walk in and to believe more and more each and every day. And I keep coming back to the cross and I realise it. Friends, if you're tired of carrying that hidden burden this morning, come to the cross. It is the only place you will find where your hidden story comes into the light and there is no condemnation and a new story begins. You are loved. You are forgiven. He rejoices over you. This is your story. This is my story. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's just come before the cross. And let's just in our mind's eye see Jesus there. And maybe for the first time really, really get it. Really understand that it's true. That Matt goes there and Matt's hidden story comes into the light and he is forgiven. And a new story is declared over Matt. That he is loved and he is a child of God. And that's the same for you. It's the same for you. Come in honesty. Come and see it for what it is and repent and just give it away and let Jesus take it and hear Jesus speak over you it is finished now we write a new story you are fully known you are fully loved you are totally forgiven because of Jesus Holy Spirit I ask you now to come And just in this moment, 
in a moment of quiet, speak your truth and your life and work again the miracle of forgiveness in all of us. I pray for you this morning that you will step in deeper and deeper, more and more, into your new story. That you are known, you are loved, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking it all. Thank you, Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those who are in you. We say we're sorry. And we receive your love and your forgiveness. And we delight in it. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven.